Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Today's episode will be the last one before I take a week-long break from the production side of the podcast. Minnesota schools have an October break each year and with three days of no school next week I'll be headed up to my cabin with my boys. While I don't plan on doing any actual podcasting, I will use the time to map out the rest of 2023 and some of the big changes coming in 2024. The Patreon-only premium channel will be coming next year, with episodes only available to those who sponsor the program on Patreon, as well as actual YouTube videos featuring crime scene and law enforcement topics, and you'll get to see more of Luna and myself on a regular basis. But before I can plan that all out, let's get to this episode and quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The American Civil War dominates U.S. history books for a The estimated 620,000 fatalities that occurred during the war account for more deaths than the U.S. losses in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War II, World War II, and the Korean War combined. It is an extremely dark time period in the history of the nation, but it didn't get that dark overnight. The years leading up to the war saw many deadly skirmishes between abolitionists to slavery and those supportive of the evils of slavery. The conflict was often greatest in the muddy grounds between the free states of the north and the slave states of the south. One of the most aggressive abolitionists was a man named John Brown. He led many attacks in Kansas, a state truly divided by slavery, and his attack called the Potawatomi Massacre kicked off a three-month series of attacks dubbed Bleeding Kansas. John Brown's men faced off against border ruffians who were pro-slavery mercenaries sent to Kansas in a prelude to the later full-blown civil war. After igniting a small powder keg in Kansas and securing a free state victory in that state, John Brown set his sights on a larger powder keg and utilized his connections with the Underground Railroad in southern Iowa to amass a small army and eventually lead them to attack Harper's Ferry in Virginia. The raid on Harper's Ferry was meant to send a message to all freedom-seeking slaves in the South to rise up and fight their better armed but severely outnumbered owners and pro-slave law enforcement. The raid failed to provide the spark needed for rebellion, but is widely seen as a major catalyst for the war that eventually freed the slaves. To this day, not many people know the role Southeast Iowa played in the years leading up to the Civil War. John Brown used the small town of Springville, Iowa to build the army he would use for the Harper's Ferry Raid, and 75 miles away, the small town of Fairfield, Iowa served as a stop on the Underground Railroad. It was in the town of Fairfield, Iowa, that two teens would commit a terrible crime over 150 years after the need for the Underground Railroad and John Brown's activism. This is the story of Nohima Graver. Nohima Castillo y Castillo was born on November 10, 1954 in Zalupa, Veracruz, Mexico. 
After high school, Nohima became a flight attendant from Mexicana de Aviación, and in the 1970s, she trained to become a commercial passenger jet pilot. She became one of the first women in Mexico to gain certification to fly commercial jets. She met Paul Graber in her hometown, and the two married on October 4, 1986, in Mexico. Six years later, in 1992, the couple moved to Fairfield, Iowa, and settled down and raised three children in a small town of just under 10,000 residents. Nohima was extremely strong in her Catholic faith and attended Mass daily. She was known to guide other members of the church, especially those of the small Latino community that began arriving to the area in the late 1990s and early 2000s. As her children got older, Nohima transitioned from a full-time mother to a mother and a student as she obtained a bachelor's degree in English and a teaching certificate from a nearby university. With her native language being Spanish, but also having a strong grasp of the English language, her decision to become a Spanish teacher played to one of her many strengths. She started her teaching career at Atamoa High School, and then in 2012, she accepted a job with her new hometown school of Fairfield High School. It was said that as a teacher, she was well-loved by students, parents, and her fellow teachers, and was well-known by those in the school and larger community. She enjoyed taking afternoon walks in a nearby park and reading. It was on one of these walks that an unimaginable crime would occur and a community would be shocked to its core. November 2nd, 2021 was an average weather day for the city of Fairfield, Iowa. The temperature was a cool 45 degrees with a light wind in the afternoon as Nohima pulled into Chautauqua Park. The wooded park features an 18-hole disc golf course and a paved three-quarter mile walking path that circles the outside of the 28-acre public property. Nohima left her car around 4 p.m. to do a lap of the park and then disappeared. Although Paul and Nohima got divorced sometime around 2016, they were still close, and Paul called police later that evening to report his ex-wife as missing. He was not able to get hold of her after her walk, and he began to get worried. Police drove to the park, but Nohima's vehicle wasn't there. At this point in the investigation, some things had to be going through the officer's mind. So we'll step aside here. It's, it's pretty cut and dry just because of the amount of evidence that we're going to find against the suspects, because the su suspects are eventually going to plead guilty. There's not going to be a lot to talk about in terms of a trial. So I'll take whatever chance I get during this podcast to can step aside and, and kind of break things down a little bit further. I've mentioned it several times on these podcasts. I like to try to put people into the minds of the investigators at different points in the investigation because often with true crime podcasts, what we get is a real quick synopsis of the crime and then a lot of hindsight 2020 breakdown of everything that was wrong in the investigation. And again, obviously as somebody who's pro-law enforcement, I don't think that's fair. I'd like people to have a better understanding of what is actually going on in the minds of the investigators, what type of processes they have to go through in terms of eliminating suspects, identifying suspects, identifying evidence, letting the evidence do the talking and avoid things as we've gotten in the past with tunnel vision. We've mentioned too, like, talked about the deck of cards when it comes to homicides where 
you know, sometimes you get a winning hand, sometimes you get a, a very difficult hand. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't win with it, it just means it's going to be a lot harder. So when we have shorter episodes like this, I, I like to try to get a little deeper into some of that stuff. So we'll just step aside and kind of look at what's going on at this point. So what we have is a pretty regimented person to a certain degree. She's attending mass every day. She's got a full-time job that is pretty similar every day, similar schedule for the most part. Uh, and ultimately she's gonna be doing this daily walk as well after school. And ultimately, as we're gonna find out, that's it plays against her and it sometimes does in situations like this. But when you have somebody who's so regimented, stepping outside of that schedule, even for a little bit, does cause concern for other people. Now, I'm going to be fully honest here. I researched this entire episode for the the day that I spent on it, and it wasn't until just before I sat down to do the podcast that I found out that Paul and Nohima weren't married at the time of this crime. I wrote this entire episode as if they were still married, just because every article I found just mentioned Paul and never said anything about ex-husband until I found one article that said they'd been divorced for about five years. And I don't think that one article is making it up. I just think the other articles just chose not to focus on that, which is fine. It's it's not totally germane to the actual story in this case, but when it comes to breaking it down and what's going on with the investigators, some of that does come into play. Now, I kind of had to quick rewrite some of this stuff with the idea that they aren't together anymore or they weren't together at the time of the crime but some of the stuff is still the same no matter if they were together or not so the first thing when anybody who starts to get up there slightly in age and when i say that i mean right around the upper 40s early 50s the first thing that comes into mind when somebody goes missing is health concerns and this can be as simple as somebody going for a walk and suffering uh, something like a heart attack or a stroke or something while they're out on this walk and that can be ruled out rather easily by of course the police going to this park and finding that her vehicle isn't there now the second thing is a mental health situation and that can include especially now that we know that there's a divorce in place police are going to have to ask a lot of hard questions about this divorce was this something that nohima wanted was it something that Paul wanted? Was it something that Ohima struggled with? You know, there's a lot of people that go through divorce and at the time of the divorce, they think it's what they want and they think it's what's gonna be healthy for them. And as time goes on, it gets more and more difficult for them to be apart from the person that they were married to for so long. So all of that stuff has to be looked at because from a mental health standpoint, you do have to rule out things like suicide and, and self-harm and, and different things like that. Now, with Nohima's strong Catholic faith and, and the Catholic Church's view of suicide, I, I don't know that that would have been something they would have been particularly concerned about. Uh, she's also very involved with a lot of different community organizations, the school. There's going to be a lot of questions about her behavior leading up to her disappearance that is likely going to point away from any type of a suicide situation. But the final thing for mental health, especially with older people, and we've talked about it before, but it's dementia. Some people can have 
early onset dementia as early as their late 40s, early 50s, where they may wander off their routine, whether it be driving to the grocery store and they end up six hours away somewhere because they just, there's a gap in their mind and, and they can't figure out, they either drive to a place they used to live, they they get just so confused and they just keep on driving, like they're going to eventually get to where they're supposed to be. So if, if it's a situation where it's possible that this person could have been showing some signs, and when I was investigating missing persons, especially somebody in their 50s, 60s, and beyond, you know, these are the questions I had to ask the family is, have they shown any signs of this? Have they mentioned things out of time, out of place, where they will start talking about something that occurred 10, 15, 20 years ago as if it happened yesterday? Uh, is it something where, you know, they were supposed to make it a 15-minute drive to get to a location and it took them four hours and they couldn't account for that time? So these are some of the questions law enforcement are going to have to ask Nohima's friends and family to see if it's potential that she may have driven off somewhere. And, and she's got the additional side of having been born and lived a, a large portion of her life in an entire different country. If there's an issue with dementia and her mind has this fog to it, it's very possible she could have driven from Iowa to or towards Mexico in order to return to where she thinks she's living. So there's a lot of different factors in play from a health standpoint, and these often are the first things to be looked at because in reality about I won't give a percentage because I don't know a percentage, but it's a pretty high percentage of time that there's a missing person. It's either going to be miscommunication or health concerns. Now, we'll get into that next part, miscommunication. This is an even bigger deal when you're talking about an ex-husband reporting his ex-wife missing because, yes, they may have a perfectly healthy post-divorce relationship, but it doesn't mean that Nohima has to tell him everything. If Nohima just started dating somebody and she doesn't want him to know for whatever reason, could she have gone somewhere on, on a date? Could she have gone to spend an evening with this other person? There's a lot of different factors in play that are going to make this difficult to look at as anything but an eventually explained situation down the road. This is what I'm saying. I investigated hundreds of missing person cases in my career and very rarely did it end with the person being deceased now sometimes they did because of suicide very rarely because of homicide sometimes because of a death from natural causes but for the most part if somebody's missing they are found and it's it's usually as i said health concerns or miscommunication now the very final part of this to look at is especially now that we know that they're divorced, is there a possibility that Paul had something to do with the disappearance? Now, ultimately, we're going to find out no, but again, if we go back in time to the evening in which this is reported, this is something that has to be ruled out. It always does. It's the significant other, the ex-significant other, the person somebody's living with, roommate, whoever it might be that has quote-unquote access to this person and as we talk about it means motive and opportunity those are the big things and most of the time the opportunity part falls to somebody closest to the victim uh, so you know as investigators are looking at this the evening that she goes missing 
they're not right away going to have her vehicle. They're not right away going to have any whereabouts of Nohima. And they don't have anything likely get gained from their initial investigation and talking with Paul and other family members that are going to indicate health concerns, miscommunication, anything along those lines. It's, it's one of those unfortunate cases where it literally appears like somebody vanished into thin air. So it's going to be until her vehicle's located, which it's found at the end of a rural road, and Nohima's nowhere near her vehicle, that investigators are going to start to look towards the potential for foul play. And then they're also going to get a witness that's going to come forward and say that two teenage boys were seen leaving the park, driving the van, and they didn't see Nohima in the van. These homicide investigations or, or investigations into missing persons, they're like jigsaw puzzles. The only difference is the jigsaw puzzle pieces are upside down so you don't even know often what you're what you're putting together but eventually when pieces get flipped over for you through eyewitnesses through what evidence whatever whatever might help you have a clearer picture of what happened in this case it's eyewitnesses saying hey her vehicle left about 4:42, so about 42 minutes after she arrived there we're not seeing her in the van we're seeing two teenage boys driving the van so now you have to start to look at is this a carjacking? Is this, are these two boys taking the van unrelated to the fact that she's disappeared? Sometimes when people go for walks in parks and parks and here's my public safety announcement for this episode, do not leave your purse in your vehicle. I don't know how many times I would respond to many of the city or county parks in my city where somebody left their purse in their vehicle and they don't realize there's a suspect sitting two cars away watching them stuff their purse under the front seat. As soon as that you're out of sight and the parking lot doesn't have anybody in it, that person's walking over, smashing your window, grabbing your purse, driving to the local Target or, or Walmart and just racking up as much money on those credit cards as quickly as they can. It just, it just happens. So was this one of those situations where because she's gonna be on the back side of the secluded park on a walk. She leaves her car unlocked, leaves the purse in there with the keys in there, and these teenage boys see an opportunity to just hop in her van and drive away. Could that be a situation? Absolutely, but that still, that doesn't account for Nohima not being found. Then she should come back to the parking lot and eventually wave somebody down and get some help and report her car as stolen at that point. So, you know, again, there's, there's it's not a complete jigsaw puzzle just because you get one eyewitness or a couple pieces of evidence that does not mean your your jigsaw puzzle is is fully visible at that point but at least you're starting to get some ideas and now you're starting to look at she's a teacher there's some teenage boys driving away in her van is there a connection with the school and it's difficult to get the timeline because i don't have the specifics, although there's a dozen articles out there about this case, mostly from the same newspaper, they don't really ever break down like, this is when law enforcement found out this, which caused this to happen, which caused this to happen. And just, you get kind of get on the day she went missing, here's what we know, arrived at the park at four, her vehicle seen leaving at 442, driven by two teenage males, and the next day her body is found. Now. I think that they use some information from students to find the body, but we'll just go into kind of the body being found and then the stuff about the students so it's kind of all together. 
So search of the park the next day resulted in investigators locating a mound off of the walking path. This mound consisted of a tarp held down by railroad ties, a wheelbarrow, and the body of Nohima Graver. She had severe trauma to her head, and the missing person's case was now a homicide. So if you can imagine, I guess in my mind I'm picturing something that looks like something would be left behind by parks maintenance, uh, a tarp covering some type of a dirt mound or maybe some eventual building supplies for a picnic shelter or something along those lines. You're just, you're walking along and saying like, oh, that kind of looks out of place, but at the same time, maybe not completely out of place. If it's, I could see a reason why this park would have this mound. Now this park also, as I mentioned, has an 18 hole disc golf course in the middle. So maybe underneath this mound could be a spare, uh, if you guys know what frisbee golf is it's where you literally are taking frisbees you have a golf course set up in a park you throw the frisbee like you would hit a golf ball and these there's i guess the best way to describe these little towers with cages made out of hanging chains and you basically in order to sink your shot you have to get the frisbee to land in this tower with this cup and these chains that kind of stuff so I guess I could also think that because the interior of this park is a disc golf course that underneath this tarp could be a spare one of these disc towers that marks the the hole but investigators are also going to realize they have a missing person that seems to have never left this park and unfortunately when they investigate this mound they're going to find the body of Nohima Graver under the tarp. And then I believe the way it was described is she's also under a wheelbarrow. So the wheelbarrow is turned, it's one of two things. Either she's in the wheelbarrow, the tarp's over the top of her in the wheelbarrow, and then the railroad ties keeping the tarp down, or she's on the ground with the wheelbarrow flipped over on top of her, tarp over the top, railroad ties around the tarp. Either way, she's unfortunately found in this, I guess, makeshift shelter grave type thing and she's got severe trauma to her head and so now the the police have ruled out all of their all other options except for homicide at this point point. and while investigators develop their theories they're looking into the idea that the two teenagers seen driving away might be local high school students and this is again where i think all of this was going on before her body was discovered but because i don't have an exact timeline we're just gonna kind of cover it. Just just keep in mind the order of this stuff is fluid. And interviews were conducted with students and one student produced Snapchat evidence implicating two teens, Jeremy Goodell and Willard Miller as being involved in the murder of Nohima Graver. So as you can imagine, high school, no matter where you are in the world, these places are gossip mills and we now have social media whether it be facebook snapchat whatsapp instagram twitter slash x all these different social media sites that and then just good old-fashioned texting and even good or older fashioned calling where people are communicating now when it's done on a platform such as snapchat or any texting app or social media app a lot of the times that stuff is going to be captured and in the case of, of snapchat sometimes you know people add people that don't even want to be involved in the chats into these and eventually word is going to get out 
that these two teens, this Jeremy and Willard, are potentially involved in the murder of Nohima Graver. So search warrants were issued for the phones belonging to the two teenage suspects, and through those search warrants, a plethora of evidence of the planning, execution, and attempt to cover up the murder was discovered. But before we get into the crime and evidence, let's talk about the little that we know about these two teenage suspects. So because they're juveniles, there isn't a lot of information out there about these two guys. Uh, they're juveniles at the time of the, the crime, and I think they're still juveniles or, or, or roughly juveniles now. They might be turning 18 sometime soon or maybe just recently turned 18. But because they're juveniles at the time, there wasn't a lot of information other than their names. And so they were 16 years old at the time and students at Fairfield High School. And sometime before the murder, Willard Miller met with Nohima, his Spanish teacher, about receiving a failing grade in her class. So uh, apparently, according to some of the different articles, it was roughly, I think it was two weeks before the murder, uh, Willard had a conversation with his teacher, and he was seen arguing with her about this failing grade he was receiving in the class. Because obviously a failing grade is going to affect his overall GPA. And the evidence on the phone, which there isn't a lot of stuff out there. A, this is still working its way through the courts. B, this is a case involving juveniles. So there's not a lot of information put out there. Um, But what was said was that Willard then conspired with his good friend Jeremy. And the two made the decision to kill the beloved Spanish teacher. Court documents would later state that evidence from their phones indicated the two suspects stalked and documented Nohima's movements for about two weeks before the murder. They knew that she had a daily routine of walking at City Park and parts of the walking path are extremely secluded. So on the day of the murders, the two teens waited outside the path, hidden by large trees, and jumped out and ambushed Nohima. They drug her just off the path where they took turns delivering fatal blows to her head with a baseball bat. So this is where I mentioned she has this regimented schedule and this is something that works for a lot of people they like to have a a pretty regimented schedule uh, to their life it it maintains order in their life and but it also can make them susceptible to situations now nohima is not your high-risk victim she's not somebody who would think that by doing this regimented schedule that she's going to be uh, potentially a target but because she goes to this park every day to go for a walk. It's not going to be difficult for these guys to plan this murder. And I only say that I'm not blaming Nohima. I'm just saying that if she had a more dynamic schedule where she was only waited until nice days to go to the park or even then she had other stuff going on. So she loved to go for walks but did it once or twice a week on different days of the week. I'm not saying that this murder still wouldn't have happened. I'm just saying it would have been more difficult for these guys to carry it out. And there's a chance that they may have attempted it a couple of times. And if Nohima didn't show up, that they got frustrated and then started to talk too much. As we're going to find out, they talked a lot before and after the murder. And eventually somebody would have caught on and, and reported this. And, and Nohima would still be with us today if they had to work harder to commit this murder but unfortunately because of her schedule they're able to rather easily set up this ambush and then during even the plea agreement phase of this part there's not really a set knowledge of who did what 
when it comes to the murder. Now, they're go both going to be charged with the murder, but each of them are going to do the typical point the finger at the other person. One is going to say they just acted as a lookout and the other person actually committed the murder. And then the other one's going to say the exact same thing. And obviously, either they're both lying or one of them is lying for sure. But it was believed it's possible that both of them uh, delivered uh, fatal blows to Nohima during the process of the homicide. What we do know is once they were sure she was dead, they walked back to the parking lot and got in her vehicle and drove it to a secluded location. They then called a friend to come pick them up in that location and give them rides to their houses. And I think they also had called for a ride to the park so that they their car wouldn't be in the park, which obviously from a planning standpoint makes sense i mean if you're gonna have your car there and you're in a small town and people know what type of car you drive if these guys even have a car uh, it's going to be rather easy for someone later on to say well it was only mrs graber's car and willard or jeremy's car that was in the parking lot you might want to talk to those guys so i think they got a ride there which of course included now another person as a witness and then eventually they're going to need a ride back. And I think originally they had planned on putting Nohima's body in the van and then driving her body in the van away to some secluded location just to further throw off the investigation. But what people don't often realize is human bodies, when they're not alive anymore are, are, or unconscious, are very difficult to carry and unless you've been trained in different either body drags or buddy carries or anything like that, these guys don't look like they're big, strong, weightlifting football player type guys. My guess is they didn't realize how difficult it would be and how long it was going to take to get her body back to the van. And the chances that somebody might see that at that point uh, is also going to be a concern of theirs. So they abandoned this put her in the van plan and decide uh, to just drive the van away create that that further confusion of where could she be and and potentially obviously don't look in the park because she's not there anymore because she left the park but what they didn't realize is you're going to have witnesses seeing you driving this van that is actually going to have more people looking at you than if you just left the van there in the first place and so the friend that they called to get a ride from the van back to their houses the way I read between the lines is not very clear in the articles, but I think this is the friend that told the police about the Snapchat conversations. And they would provide police with detailed information as to what the teens were wearing when they were picked up. So then the, the officers do a search warrant at Jeremy Goodall's home. They located the clothing he was described to be wearing, and later lab tests provided evidence of blood spatter on the clothing. The blood identified was that of Nohima Graber. Investigators also located strands of hair, bath towels that were used to clean up, and two baseball bats. Now, when this is going to, to trial, there is going to be a complaint about the search warrants. And these are going to be the search warrants of the phones, and I believe the search warrants of the, the two suspects' houses. The One of the attorneys for one of the suspects is going to try to have these search warrants tossed out because it's based on this information provided by what they called an unreliable witness. And I understand this is the defense attorney's job and you're facing a mountain of evidence against your clients and one of the only ways to potentially get rid of this is to get these 
search warrants tossed out because if the search warrants are tossed out all the evidence obtained via the search warrants are tossed out and then you might have a fighting chance of trying to get an acquittal for your for your clients but what what's interesting is this gives us a quick chance to talk about these search warrants and not just these but search warrants in general a lot of people will say well why don't police just get a search warrant and it's for this reason search warrants are highly scrutinized especially when it comes to pre-trial and 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 what are called contested omnibus hearings where you're seeing what evidence can go into the case and if you as a police officer even if you can get a judge to sign a search warrant if that search warrant later is found not to have enough probable cause it never should have been issued in the first place you can lose all the evidence you get from those search warrants so police can't just go out and just willy-nilly serve search warrants on on people they need to have probable cause to invade that person's home to remove items from that home it's part of the protections that we have under the constitution that we shouldn't be subject to illegal searches and seizures so you know in this case it's not going to hold up they're going to be able to use the search warrants and the evidence obtained from the search warrants but it's just something to keep in mind whenever people watch shows or listen to podcasts and and i've heard podcasters say before they don't understand why they didn't get a search warrant for this or why it took them so long to get a search warrant for this it's because it's not just a piece of paper that you you write willy-nilly on it whatever you want and then the judge signs it and then you get all this evidence there's there has to be solid probable cause before you can get that search warrant signed so anyway in this case the judges are going to rule and and i know this some of the stuff is appealed already so it could work its way up through the appeal courts um but at least the trial judge is going to rule no the search warrants are good all the evidence is good and there's obviously a mountain of evidence now against these two guys uh, for the murder and further eyewitness testimony indicated that one of the teens was seen pushing a wheelbarrow through town around midnight on the night of the murders it was believed that after originally leaving Nohima's body in the woods off the walking trail one or both of the suspects returned later with a wheelbarrow tarp and used some railroad ties to try to hide the body so originally the body was just off the side of the trail and they realized they needed to do a better job of hiding the body but at the same time they didn't really have a plan for extricating the body from the park so i i don't know if they thought that they could hide it here for a few days and nobody would notice this mound with the tarp and that kind of stuff off in the woods and then eventually they were going to move the body but it shows how short-sighted their their plan was in terms of well now you've you've killed this teacher because she's giving you a bad grade but now you don't have a way to to get away with the crime i'm thankful they didn't but it kind of seems like their plan kind of ended at, at at killing the teacher after word got out about the murder and the suspects more students came forward and told police that willard made odd comments in the week before and the day of and after the murder telling other students that mrs graber was about to vanish and willard told a classmate that he'd quote unquote caught someone with a baseball bat end quote the day after the murders so as we mentioned, these are high schoolers. They're obviously not thinking things through. They're making mention of things that are going to come back and really indict them for these murders uh, 
before even all the evidence is gathered and tested and all that kind of stuff. So it's not as if they kept their mouths shut. And, you know, it's often said the only way you can do a perfect murder is if you do it alone because then there's only one person to talk and you control what is said from that person because it's you. With this murder, of course, you have two people. You now involve a third person for a ride and now you're involving even more people by telling people stuff about the teacher vanishing and, and you catching somebody with a baseball bat. And after the two boys were arrested, they tried to come up with some type of a story that could be believed. And the best they could do was that a roving band of mask-wearing killers murdered the teacher and then made the two of them clean up the crime. So their only defense is going to be the wasn't us, wasn't there, but we were made to be involved in the crime. And this is going to fly in face of everything they see on Snapchat about the planning, the stalking for two weeks, all that kind of stuff. So there, there really is no story that they can tell that anybody's going to believe other than the truth. After gathering all the evidence against the two 16-year-olds, the investigators gave the case over to the prosecutors. In Iowa, a juvenile 14 or older can be tried as an adult if the case involves violent criminal behavior. If the juvenile is 16 or older and commits a forcible felony, they are automatically tried as an adult. A forcible felony refers to a violent crime such as murder, sexual assault, and assault causing serious injury. Because of their age and the crime they committed, Jeremy and Willard were automatically going to be tried as adults. Their attorney attempted to move the case to juvenile court, but was unsuccessful. If the case had been moved to juvenile court, which would have been more likely if they had been under the age of 14 at the time of the crime, they would have faced a maximum under Iowa law of detention in a juvenile facility until the age of 18, and then they would be released. And as the prosecutor said, there was no juvenile facility in the world that would be able to rehabilitate these two suspects in less than two years and be able to promise they wouldn't kill again. So we haven't covered a lot of cases with juvenile homicide suspects. It, it, it really does come down to age, uh, and every state is different. Uh, I actually had to look up Iowa law because, uh, again, different states have different age limits, different states have different requirements for time served. In some cases, a juvenile can be found guilty as a juvenile, but then stay incarcerated after they're 18. So again, every state being different, this was a pretty clear-cut case. They were both 16. It would have got more interesting, I guess, from a legal standpoint if they were under 16 or one of them was under 16 because then it's a, a case where the prosecution has to petition the court and try to prove to the court that this juvenile should be tried as an adult. Uh, everything was automatic in this case based on their ages, but again, if if one had been 16, one 14, one 15, and one 13, uh, it would have made the case a little more difficult to uh, try, I guess is the best way to put it. And the suspects were set to be tried as adults, and while they decided to point the finger at each other for who delivered the fatal blow, they both agreed to plead guilty to first-degree murder and accept their fate. After entering a plea deal, Willard Miller continued to contend that he did not strike any blows to a Spanish teacher's head and only acted as a lookout while Jeremy committed the actual murder. His attorneys tried to convince the judge that because Willard was claiming to only be a lookout, he shouldn't receive the maximum punishment. Under an Iowa law passed in 2016, juveniles convicted in adult court of murder cannot be sentenced to life without parole. 
Willard's lawyers were asking for a life sentence for their client with no minimum to serve, meaning he would be eligible for parole within years of his sentence. So because of this 2016 law, and, and this is something I do actually agree with, I, I'm normally not for lenient sentences or situations where if you kill somebody, you can get out of prison. But there's a lot of psychological studies out there that have proven that teenagers and even the brains of young adults aren't fully developed. And the consequence versus impulse that's going on in their brain especially during puberty late puberty uh, late development childhood development means that they're not making decisions the same way that that an adult does and if you commit a crime at the age of 14 or 15 years old and the punishment for that crime is life without the possibility of parole really i mean you are going to be in prison the absolute rest of your life for something that you did while your brain was still developing. Now, does it mean that there shouldn't be consequences? No, but I do think that if you have a situation where you're taking a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid, putting him or her in prison for the rest of their life, and I guess sometimes it does come down to the crime that's committed, but still, if you're going to put them away for the absolute rest of their life, there's really no hope in their mind or any chance for rehabilitation. Now, I also don't agree with this defense asking for no minimum time to serve because you're basically saying to the family, yeah, he'll go away to prison, but we want him out as soon as possible. So I, you know, I think the middle ground is in there. I think the judges are, are given some leniency. They can't give him life without parole, but in this case, they're also not going to look at the crime itself and the behavior of the the suspect after the murders and decide, you know, they, they don't need a minimum. So prosecutors requested a minimum service time of 25 years before being eligible for parole, and they highlighted Willard's refusal to take responsibility for the crime or show any remorse or apologize to Nohima's family as a sign he needed to sit in prison for an extended period of time. The judge agreed and sentenced Willard to life in prison with a mandatory service period of 30 years, five years longer than the prosecution requested. The defense team immediately appealed the sentence. So obviously it's a plea deal, so they're not going to appeal anything at the trial, but the judge is going to look at the recommended time in prison. They're going to look at what the prosecution is requesting, and then they're going to look at, again, the crime itself, the suspect's actions after the crime and the judge is going to feel in this case that Willard needs to spend at least a minimum of 30 years in prison before he's eligible to be paroled and the defense team is going to want to look at that and say that's too much they're hoping I should say that the appeals court says it's too long of a sentence and they knock some years off that minimum mandatory but that's really likely the only thing that's going to happen in this case to change anything would be he might get knocked down to 25 or 20 years of minimum service. Jeremy sentencing was scheduled for August 23rd, 2023, but his defense team requested a later date. Originally, the prosecution fought the delay because Nohima's husband Paul was battling cancer, and they weren't sure he would still be alive in November to attend the sentencing. Unfortunately, Paul lost his battle to cancer on June 29th and was unable to attend the sentencing hearing. So the prosecution agreed to allow the delay in sentencing and the defense hopes that a psychologist they had lined up to testify will sway the judge to give Jeremy a lesser sentence. And I know, again, I, I missed one there. It's, it's 
Paul was her ex-husband, but because they were obviously still got along really well, he was one that actually reported her missing. They were doing what they could to, with him battling cancer for him to kind of see the the justice at the end of this, but unfortunately he passed away before either of the sentencing hearings. And Jeremy's defense is going to use the psychologist and pretty much talk about what I just mentioned, uh, the fact that Jeremy has a developing brain as a 16-year-old, that he's going to obviously have issues with his uh, impulse control and understanding of the consequences of his actions. So they're going to try to use the psychologist to sway the judge. I highly doubt it's going to work. I'm going to assume that with the finger pointing back and forth and the, the fact that both of them are believed to have delivered fatal blows, my guess is that Jeremy's also going to get this the same sentence as 30 years, but uh, and that's possible too that the prosecution realizes that. And, and with Paul no longer around, they're just going to play ball and with the hopes that the judge gives the same sentence. So, many of those close to Paul Graver stated that they believe Paul's death was accelerated by the loss in Ohima. They believe he ignored some early signs of the cancer while dealing with the grief of losing his. Uh, ex-wife and a family member told reporters that if Nohima was still alive when Paul first started showing signs she would have convinced him to go to the doctor and the cancer would have been caught earlier giving him a much better chance of fighting the disease. In less than two years the sons and daughter of Nohima and Paul had to bury both their parents. Both deaths attributed to the senseless act of violence against a teacher due to a failing grade and the evil and immaturity of two teenagers. Teaching is often considered one of the hardest jobs and as a son of a teacher, I know how many long days and difficult students educators have to endure. It's a labor of love for many who seek to enlighten children and young adults, and all you teachers have my thanks and admiration. Nohima Graber's family, friends, coworkers, and community lost an amazing person that November day, and I hope her name is remembered for all the years to come. That is the story of Nohima Graber. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.